and Sundays at 1500. Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington and here are some of the stories that are making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. UN human rights experts say civilians in South Sudan are still being terrorized on a wide scale. Our team has documented further gross human rights violations throughout the country, including widespread and horrific attacks against civilians and state-sponsored extrajudicial killings. And the UNMIS boss says elections can happen next year if South Sudanese leaders make it happen. I can't speak to the political will, but to the physical possibility to make the compromises which would see the arrangements necessary for free, fair and credible elections. I believe they're there. They're still there. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. An investigation by a group of human rights experts finds that tens of thousands of civilians in South Sudan are still being terrorized and traumatized by widespread gross human rights violations fueled by pervasive impunity. The latest report by the three-member UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan came under review by the Human Rights Council today. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. In presenting the report, Commission member Andrew Clapham told the council that words cannot fully express the horror and totality of ongoing atrocities perpetrated against the people of South Sudan. Since we last addressed this council in March 2022, our team has documented further gross human rights violations throughout the country, including widespread and horrific attacks against civilians and state-sponsored extrajudicial killings. Sexual violence against women and girls remains systematic and the use of children by state forces and non-state armed groups continues. The commission documented what it said was a well-planned and devastating operation in Lear County. It said government officials there directed militias to carry out widespread killings, rape and forced displacement against civilians considered to be loyal to the opposition. The commission has gathered evidence of other government-inspired military operations carried out in Tonj North and Mayum counties. Clapham said the commission found the escalation of violence in Upper Nile State particularly alarming. In Upper Nile, civilians were again targeted by multiple armed groups with competing political agendas in a quest for territorial control. Survivors recounted moving from village to village pursued by attackers who killed and raped civilians based on their ethnic affiliation. Clapham said those responsible for atrocities must be investigated and brought to justice. Unfortunately, he noted that the government has carried out only one actual investigation, though it has announced the establishment of different special investigative committees to examine these four situations. South Sudan's Minister of Justice, Ruben Madol, Role was not impressed. He said the commission's report was full of inaccuracies and contradictions. He said the methodology used by the commission was profoundly flawed and contained recycled allegations from previous reports dating back to 2013. He said human rights in his country were progressing, noting the government had ratified several important human rights conventions and has fully implemented the action plan 
for the armed forces on addressing conflict-related sexual violence in South Sudan. He accused the commission of undermining the sovereignty of South Sudan and called on the council not to renew its mandate. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. United Nations mission in South Sudan boss Nicholas Hasem says despite all of the challenges facing South Sudanese, it is still possible to hold elections at the end of next year if the country's leaders have the political will to do so. I can't speak to the political will, but to the physical possibility to make the compromises which would see the arrangements necessary for free, fair and credible elections. I believe they're there. They're still there. Obviously, it's a fast-closing window of opportunity. Uh, As time goes by, it will be more difficult uh, to meet those conditions. The U.N. Special Representative in South Sudan and the UNMIS boss spoke to reporters yesterday after briefing the United Nations Security Council in New York on current conditions in South Sudan. Hasem said for elections to take place next year, as agreed to by the parties to the peace agreement, the government needs to establish the architecture of institutions that are capable of managing elections to the extent that most South Sudanese would recognize the results as looking how they voted. The South Sudan Union of Journalists is calling on the government to unconditionally release their colleagues who work for the South Sudan Broadcasting Corporation. The journalists have been under detention at the National Security Service headquarters in Juba for more than two months now. Patrick Oyet, the head of the journalist union, says the government has not pressed any charges against the arrested journalists and their detention is unconstitutional. Viola Elias has the details for VOA from Juba. At first, six journalists working for the national broadcaster SSBC were arrested and detained by the National Security Service, or NSS, in December. Although the NSS did not explain the reason for the arrest, many believed they were arrested in connection to a leaked video of President Salva Kiir. The arrested journalists were Joval Tombe, Chibak Ruben, Victor Ladu, Joseph Oliver, Jacob Benjamin and Mustafa Osman. In mid-January, the authorities arrested the seventh journalist, Garang John, who is assigned to work with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The authorities later released two of the journalists, but the rest are still under detention. The president of the South Sudan Union of Journalists repeated the call to free the remaining four journalists. Patrick Oyet says it is unconstitutional to detain journalists without a charge. We call on the government to release these journalists unconditionally because uh, they have failed to prove that they have any case to answer. And that is it normally. You know, when you are a state, you only arrest somebody when you have some preliminary investigation that have been done and you are sure that you're able to push the case to court. If you are not able to take the person to court, you release the person within 24 hours. Oyet argues no matter the reason for their arrest, South Sudanese security agents are not above the law or the South Sudan constitution. There was anything that somebody would think about, our, our supreme law is the constitution. No law or no policy will go against the constitution. So for that reason, whatever argument somebody will try to bring out just does not hold any water. And for that reason... These people should be released. Detained Mustafa Osman's wife, Sande Mustafa, tells South Sudan in focus 
she and other family members have not been granted access to see her husband. Information that he is doing well. We have not visited him, but he was brought here at home 10 days after his arrest to collect his laptop. He appears he is doing well because last week he sent someone to pick up his university handouts. Amnesty International, the UN panel of experts, the UN Commission on Human Rights and other human rights group have documented numerous cases of arbitrary detention by National Security Service agents at multiple facilities where some detainees have been subjected to torture and others illegal treatment, while others have been held without access to a lawyer or family members. For VOA News, I am Viola Elias in Juba. A local nonprofit called Defy Hate Now, which is run by some young South Sudanese men and women in Juba, say the group is working with social media companies to identify misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech posted by some South Sudanese on social media. Emmanuel Bita Thomas, who is one of the founders of the group, says they are part of Facebook's trusted partner channels and have been actively identifying and debunking misinformation posted by South Sudanese on Facebook and other social media platforms. We have a lot of misinformation cases, especially perpetrated through Facebook and WhatsApp. And these cases include uh, information that is uh, mostly out of context. For instance, if we have um, issues of conflicts that happen in some other places, then people bring images or videos of similar incidents that happen in other countries. And they'll say, hey, this is what happened in South Sudan uh, recently and stuff like that. Like uh, I remember last year there was a case of flooding in some parts of the country and people brought some pictures of of animals that died as a result of flooding in Kenya and posted that, oh, this is what happened in Unity State uh, Bentiu. We have also seen uh, videos being circulated every now and then as a result of uh, people claiming that, hey, these are uh, militias maybe from this area planning to attack this particular area. And also we have cases where... People set up Facebook pages in the name of government institutions, like uh, maybe the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Investment, uh, the Ministry of Education, and they say, hey, uh, we have received these grants and we are inviting uh, individuals and small-scale businesses to apply for, for, for funding. And also we have cases of scholarships, uh, some pages coming up and say, hey, we are offering scholarships. And the moment you apply, and again, they will request for other personal information or even request you to send the money via M-Pesa or via MTN Uganda. So these are some of the cases that uh, we have misinformation cases that we have come across recently. Let's talk about how you are handling this information through, you know, platforms like Facebook. Are you in touch with Facebook to remove some of this information that is not accurate? Misinformation, disinformation are a bit tricky because when we talk of misinformation, this is where someone has no intention to publish uh, something that is harmful to the society. Maybe, for instance, I have posted something that is false and you do not know that it is false and you share it or you retweet it. That is misinformation. And then disinformation is where I know the information is false and I publish with an intention of causing harm or maybe damaging someone's reputation. So uh, with Facebook, we are part of Facebook 
trusted partner channel where we are able to report such cases directly to Facebook. Um, in app, we have some of our staff that have been given that access in the Facebook app, and also we can report that case, those cases via email to to Facebook. And in in most cases, Facebook can respond by f- removing those content. Uh, just few days ago, you might have heard of an information where people said, hey, uh, there's going to be an earthquake in Juba. Yeah, I was told a lot of people slept outside yeah. <laughs> because they were told not to sleep inside the house. Exactly. So this information was there that, hey, there's a very strange animal coming out of the Nile and there's going to be an earthquake. So if you want to be safe, you shouldn't sleep inside. The information came past midnight. In the morning, we had to now uh, write uh, a report because uh, with science, even scientists cannot foresee yeah, an earthquake. They yeah. can predict. Yeah, they cannot predict. So we had to do this. We had to uh, also reach out to Miraya and then also uh, debunk this rumor, and, and at least uh, that has subsided and people forgot about it. That is Emmanuel Bita Thomas. He's project coordinator of Defy Hate Now, and he was speaking with VOA's John Tanza in Juba. Tomorrow in part two of their interview, Thomas talks about the impact of hate speech on South Sudanese. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, a South Sudanese activist says she walked away from her medical degree to fight for women's rights. Find out more after the break. message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Hello, I'm VOA health correspondent Lenore Mudou. During this pandemic, the World Health Organization and Africa Centers for Disease Control say if you have a fever, a cough, or have trouble breathing, you should stay home and contact a healthcare facility. For more information, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa CDC. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest health news. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. You're listening to in focus on the voice of America. Sudanese military leaders are once again asserting their commitment to the latest time frame for implementing the Juba Peace Agreement. Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, deputy chairman of the Sudan Sovereign Council, says he is hopeful that the new matrix will be observed by all signatories to the peace deal and will help restore peace in the country. Michael Atit has this report for VOA from Khartoum. Last month, signatories to the Juba Peace Agreement met in South Sudan and agreed to extend the period for implementing the agreement by another two years. Sovereign Council Deputy Chairman Mohamed Hamdan Dogolo, who commands Sudan's paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces, says the military remains committed to observing the new time frame for implementing the deal and the door is open to holdout groups who want to join the peace process. 
نؤكد حرصنا واهتمامنا We are sure our commitment for the implementation of the Juba Peace Agreement and I take this opportunity to renew our sincere call to the whole-out groups to join the ongoing peace process in Sudan. The Sudan People's Liberation Movement or SPLM North faction led by Abdulaziz Adam Al-Hilu and the Sudan Liberation Movement led by Abdul Wahid Muhammad Nur refused to sign the agreement saying the country's military leaders do not have the mandate to negotiate on behalf of the Sudanese people. Dagalo says the international community needs to support the process. We extend our hands to regional and international organizations and donors to give financial and technical support to help the remaining provisions of the Juba Peace Agreement, particularly developmental projects, repatriation of IDPs and refugees, and the security arrangement. Addressing participants at the same event, Diu Matok, secretary of the South Sudan team that mediated the Juba talks, praised the signatories for extending the time frame so the remaining provisions can be implemented. He also stressed the need to overcome the challenges for carrying out the peace deal. There are funding issues and the issue of division among some armed groups who are signatories to this agreement. They came to Khartoum and divided among themselves. Motok called on Sudanese to stop all conflicts across the country and give peace a chance. The implementation of the peace agreement requires a peaceful and non-conflict environment, so it will help in the restoration of the democratic transition. We can't keep on talking about democratic transition, and yet firearms are still in the hands of the civilians. Last week, Volker Pertz, special representative of the United Nations Secretary General and head of the United Nations Integrated Transitional Mission in Sudan, said he remains hopeful a political settlement will be reached soon to end the political stalemate and ensure that peace and stability prevail in the country. Michael Atit for VOA News, Khartoum. With International Women's Day happening tomorrow, we are taking a closer look at one women's rights activist in South Sudan who says people like herself constantly struggle to be heard in a male-dominated society like that in South Sudan. The head of the group South Sudan Democratic Engagement Monitoring and Observation Program says female activists are routinely discriminated against as they go about their work. Juliana Siapai has our story for VOA from Juba. Lorna Merkaje is an award-winning South Sudanese human rights defender, civil rights activist, and peace advocate who heads the South Sudan Democratic Engagement, Monitoring, and Observation Program. Merkaje says the fight for women's freedom inspires her to wake up each day and do her job, but International Women's Day is extra special. Well, to me, International Women's Day is that one day in a month that is dedicated to women and for women to be able to count the progress made and to me if I can graphically represent it it's a day that every woman who is living on earth is standing on the shoulder of other women who were there before us so it's a day to remind us to continue with the legacy, pass the baton to the next generation but most importantly acknowledge the gains that we have made. 
Merika J got her medical degree in Kenya, but when she returned to South Sudan in 2010, she says she saw many injustices against women, which motivated her to take action. I trained as a biomedical technologist and with a lot of passion, just like the passion I have now in activism. But when I came back to South Sudan and started seeing how we are preparing for independence, I realized that there are other people who would do the work in the laboratory, but then I will best contribute by engaging in civic processes and amplifying women's voice. But Merika just says, as a women's rights activist, she faces several challenges, including being discriminated at meetings dominated by men. I remember when I was, when I went to National Constitution Amendment Committee, I was raising my hands, and it was a matter of governance. It's about governance system. It's federalism. I am passionate about governance. And I was told, Lorna, you wait. It's not your time for 35%. And I took offense because that was not what I'm supposed to come and only do. I am a citizen of this country, and my participation should not only be reduced to the women's quarter. So those are some of the challenges. Under the 2018 peace agreement, women are supposed to be hired for 35% of government position. Merika G says women emancipation is not just about having their voices heard, but also having women represented at policy discussions. She says women should always remember to create a space for other women to shine. In 2020, Merika J received the prestigious German French Human Rights Award for advancing the rights of the vulnerable. She was one of the 15 winners, three from Sub-Saharan Africa, to receive the award. The UN theme for this year's International Women's Day is Digital for All, Innovation and Technology for Gender Equality. For VOA News, I am Juliana Shapai in Juba. Continuing with the theme on International Women's Day, the First Lady of the United States, Jill Biden, recently returned to the White House from a nearly week-long trip to Africa. And VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell traveled with the First Lady and got an inside look at why Biden decided to go to Namibia and Kenya. As we approach the International Women's Day tomorrow, Powell sat down and talked with me about Jill Biden, the educator and mother, using her global recognition to shine a spotlight on some of the world's biggest problems. Problems. Anita, thanks for joining us. Uh, you just got back from a trip with First Lady Jill Biden on her five-day trek through two African nations. And uh, in your piece that you made for VOA earlier, you said that Dr. Biden flexed her popular appeal and experience as a teacher and a mother to spotlight acute hunger in many African countries as well as inequality. Break that down for us. What did she say to bring attention to both problems? Well, as you can imagine, I mean, let me just go back and say this was a whirlwind trip. We had on average three events a day. Uh, we did not rest at all on this trip. There was there was no stopping. And what she said were, were some of the usual things, you know, like that, that women and girls should be empowered. They should have an education. These are these are universal values that we all expect and we all, I think, generally agree on. And the the problem is this does still need to be said in so many parts of the world. And to have a powerful, prominent, educated American woman saying that, that has to count for something, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
because it's it's not the priority necessarily of the Biden administration. They're more, much more national security focused. So this this is the other side. This is the yin to the yang. And I've never personally understood why we, we view them in those terms, because I don't understand, you know, that some might say that she took on soft issues and she has no enforcement. She has no mm-hmm. actual real power. But what is more powerful than being able to care for your family? What is more powerless than looking your kid in the eye and saying, I can't feed you today? Exactly. You know, so so she highlighted that, I thought. Dr. Biden talked about the need to hear from African voices on all kinds of things, especially climate change and economic inequality. Talk a little bit more about that. So first of all, she reiterated a Biden administration policy change, which is that the Biden administration is now pushing for African nations to have more say at the U.N., and also um, at the G7 and G20 fora. And this is actually important because this is something that African nations have been clamoring for for a long time. By just repeating that stance and kind of normalizing it and making it now kind of the accepted stance of the Biden administration, she drew attention to the actual hard power that the Biden administration wants to see African countries have. But in terms of, you know, hearing from African voices, she spoke to a range of people on this trip. She spoke to young people. She spoke to women. She memorably spent 36 minutes under a tree in a rural part of Kenya talking to women about how they are coping with this drought that Mm. has caused unprecedented crisis in Kenya, which is, you know, a middle-income flourishing democracy. That is VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell. Tomorrow, Powell talks with me about her one-on-one conversation with the U.S. First Lady. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today. Do you know any first aid techniques? Come to think of this question, I thought I do, but seriously, I think I may not be able to, to do too well if there is any situation present. Maybe it's something I need to go in and learn how to do. It could help somebody tomorrow. During our school days, the Red Cross Society, the club that we joined, they taught us a lot. When a child runs high temperature, you sponge the child with water from the leg to the head. Then you just rush the person to the hospital for best treatment. In case if you have drowned, if you have drowned maybe from water, the first aid technique that is available to be given is a kiss of life uh, to a person that has drawn into water. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. South Sudan in focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. And that wraps it up for us this Tuesday. Don't forget to check out VOAAfrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you somehow missed this broadcast, you can head on over to www.voaafrica.com backslash South Sudan. We now leave you with a song Kafaya by Emmanuel Kembe. <laughs> Tá
Kafaya by Emmanuel Kembe. I'm your host, Carol Van Dam in Washington. On behalf of our engineer, Helen Cordian, and producer, Kwame Afori, thanks for joining us today. We'll see you back here tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Thanks to Nakuru, thanks to Nyanyuki, Shukuran Jazil and Lenny Basham, Lakin Yakama visit Mashakil.